Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpe and Peter Torpe. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. This week, we'll be talking about ham radio. It's a great way to meet people around the world, make friends, and also an interesting hobby. We'll speak with Mike Duke, a blind ham operator, call sign K5XU, and also director of Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, about how he got involved in the hobby, how it has changed over the years, and how accessible it is now. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Mike Duke. I have met people through ham radio that I would have never met and never been on a first-name basis with otherwise. Very brilliant uh, doctors, scientists, you know, stuff, you know, people that just I just never would have crossed paths with had it not been for that. And I've, as I say, made any number of friends with it that to this day would help me any way they could with whatever I needed, whether it was radio or you know, some other, it's a, it's a great way to build a, a support network. Well, especially for a visually impaired person, when it may be hard to get out of the house or across town, you can readily connect with people around the world. For older people too. Uh, ham radio is becoming in ways a hobby for retirees. And, uh, there's a group here in my area, and there are other groups in, in other areas that are very similar. They meet up each morning at, at a certain time on one of the local channels, and they'll talk for you know 20 or 30 minutes. And if you're part of that group and you don't show up and somebody in that group doesn't know that you aren't going to be there that day, somebody's going to call you on the phone or go by your house, something to find out and make sure you're okay. You know, that's the kind of support, the older you get, the more important that is. And if you're, especially if you're homebound, that's very important. Isn't that the truth? And as we'll hear later on, ham operators can also play an important role in local and national emergencies. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by... Way Around, revolutionizing how people with vision loss keep track of important information about everyday things with the tap of a smartphone. The simple tag and scan system promotes independence in everyday situations. Learn more at www.wayaround.com. Let's start by meeting Mike and learning about what he does at his day job. My name is Mike Duke. I am the director of Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, which is part of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Mississippi Public Broadcasting is a statewide network of eight radio and eight television stations that is operated by the state of Mississippi. So I am a state employee. And I've been in this job for 30 years. Prior to that, I was in commercial broadcasting in country music radio, commercial radio, uh, as an announcer, copywriter, music director, and all the things that one does in small market radio stations. 
Now, how we met was related to your day job, the annual meeting of the International Association of Audio Information Services was down the road from us in Boulder, Colorado, and we met you there. And at the time, you mentioned an interest of yours, which is what we're going to be talking about today. That's right. I should probably back up and say, also, I have been blind since birth, totally blind, nothing but a little light perception. We met in Colorado, as you said, and my almost lifelong so far passion is ham radio or amateur radio. I call it ham radio most of the time because that's what I first learned it as. And I have been licensed as an amateur radio operator since 1969 when I was 14 years old. In fact, uh, we're recording this on October 3rd. Coming up uh, in about a week and a half, I would have had a license for 49 years. Wow. And what is your call sign? My call is K5XU, Kilo 5 X-ray uniform. Now, that is what's called a vanity call. When the FCC instituted what they call the vanity call sign program, which basically means you can pick and choose from any available call sign that fits your particular license class, they did that in 1996. And I sat down and wrote out a bunch of call letter combinations that I thought were cool. But the one I received from that list was K5XU. And what is special about that? How did you pick that as your vanity plate, so to speak? The reason I chose my call letters was because they sound so cool on CW, on Morse code, which I do a lot of. Here's how they sound. This is my call letters as you would hear them over the radio. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus topic is what it's been like to be a ham radio operator over the years for a blind person. Maybe we can start out by having you describe to us exactly what ham radio is and what distinguishes it from other forms of radio like AM, FM, CB, etc. Amateur radio is a communication service that was created by what ultimately became the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, it's intended to encourage experimentation and furthering of the uh, knowledge of radio and electronics. And it's also intended to provide assistance in times of emergency. Now, at the time amateur radio was created, that was a big deal. And it's still a big deal. But at the time amateur radio was created, you had telephones, telegraph, and ham radio in the post office. And that was about all the communications you had. And when was that, roughly? Uh, that was like uh, 1910 or 11, somewhere along in there. What started your interest in ham radio when you were young in the 60s? Well, I have always been fascinated by radio. For instance, when I was four years old, one of my earliest memories is proclaiming to my mom one day, when I grow up, I'm going to work in a radio station and drive a station wagon. Well, 
50% of your goals in life, that's not bad. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, my point is when I was four years old, I wanted to go to work in the radio station. Now, all I knew about radio at the time was there was this box in our kitchen that had two knobs on it. One of them turned it on and after it warmed up, that same knob would make it go louder. And if I turned the other knob enough back and forth, I would sooner or later find Elvis coming out of that box. And I figured that's fun. You know, I need to go to work there. You could find some amazing things on the radio when you turn the dial slowly and scour through the stations back then. That's right. And I I was in a small town in Mississippi, our local AM station. uh, This was in the late 50s. Our local AM station went off the air at sunset. And so after that, you know, I had to listen to uh, Chicago or Cincinnati or Cleveland or whatever, you know, St. Louis, whatever I could find. And I was just fascinated by that. It was magic, you know, and it's still magic. Yeah, especially at night, you could get stations from very far away bouncing off the ionosphere at night. Ham radio is very different from broadcast radio. For starters, you actually get to participate How did you even find out about it in the first place? The first time I ever heard the words ham radio, I must have been about eight years old, when my next door neighbor had borrowed his son-in-law's shortwave receiver. It was uh, made by a company called Helicrafter. And he had it on his kitchen table one night. But the main thing I remember about it is it was a fabulous AM broadcast receiver. That thing would hear stations that I couldn't hear on my radio at home. So then at about age, I was 11, I think, when my brother, my older brother, built from a kit a CB radio, Citizens Band radio, from a a company called Heathkit. And he built that thing, saved his summer job money one summer, bought it and put it together. And as he built it, you know, he would hand me this or that component and he'd say, this is a capacitor and it does this and it does that. And, you know, I'm going to put it right here on the circuit board. So he would solder the things in and, and all that. And once he got it working, he could talk to people. And some of them were people we knew and I would start talking to them and they would talk to me. So I got an interest initially in the two way aspect of radio through CB radio or citizens band. I understand you need a license to become a ham radio operator. How did you learn what you needed to know to get a license? The next year at school, I was in the um, sixth grade, and I went to the library at the school, and I said, do you have any books on radio? And the librarian handed me this book called How to Become a Radio Amateur. It was a two-volume Braille book written by the American Radio Relay League, which is the national organization of ham radio operators in the United States. They're still around. That book is no longer in print, but they have other books that are, uh, you know, that do the same thing nowadays. It was a uh, introduction to radio, how it works, how to get your first ham license and so forth. And I read that book at least once a year from cover to cover. From then on through the time I graduated from high school. That's how I learned a lot about how radio works, because to get the ham radio license at that time, even the beginner license, you had to have a bit of electronic theory and uh, know some of the basic principles of electronic circuits and so forth. You still have to know those things for some of the uh, two 
upper license now, but the beginner license now is mostly rules and regulations, and it's it's really a pretty easy test. Also, back then, you had to learn Morse code in order to get your license. Is that correct? That's correct. That's no longer a requirement? To get a license today, you do not have to learn Morse code. You did have to learn it when I was studying for my license as a teenager. And even though you don't have to learn it, there are still many, many people who still use it on ham radio. I happen to be one of those. I use it because I enjoy it. The other thing we find is that people now learn it because they want to learn it, which means that they are more apt to use it than if you're standing over them, making them learn it just to get the license. So there's still a lot of Morse code usage in ham radio. And uh, I spend a lot of time with it, enjoy Morse code. Of course, I enjoy picking up a microphone and talking also. It was nice you were able to find the initial books about radio and how it worked and ham radio in Braille. So that all worked out well for you, even being blind. It, it did work out fine. And it was quite by accident, you know, that that was in Braille and that our library had it. Fast forward about 40 years and they were moving the school for the blind and, and discarding and weeding, you know, from their collection and discarding some books. And one of my friends she was a teacher there, and she called me one day, and she said, I think I have something you're going to want. And so now sitting in a bookcase, actually here in this building in my office, is that book. Oh, cool. It's one of my prized possessions. I'm very, very proud to have it because it literally is a book that changed my life. I would guess since you started participating in ham radio as a child in the 60s, being visually impaired, things have changed a whole lot in terms of your access to the systems and the equipment. Can you talk a little bit about some of the changes and how things have become, I assume, a lot easier for people who are blind or visually impaired? For the most part, they have become easier to a large degree. In the 60s, when I was first licensed, everything was vacuum tubes. In order to keep your transmitter on the air and keep it from becoming a, a very smelly <laughs> box of smoke or whatever, you had to what we call tune the transmitter. And that is make adjustments to make sure that, that, that all the various circuits in the transmitter were properly aligned for the frequency that you were operating on. That meant being able to observe changes in the plate current, usually of the tube, on a visual meter. Now, this was an analog meter. And so if you couldn't see that meter, then you know somebody had to come tune the thing for you, and then you had to hope that you didn't grab the wrong knob and throw everything out of whack. So ham radio has been a popular hobby for blind individuals. Have you always needed sighted assistance to help you out? In order for a blind person to independently operate their transmitter, a gentleman named Bob Gunderson designed a circuit that would convert that movement of that meter to an audio pitch that would rise and fall the higher the pitch, the higher the, the reading on the meter. And so when you were trying to tune for a peak, you tune for the high pitch. And when you were trying to tune for a null or a low pitch or a dip rather in the meter, you tune for the lowest pitch. And then you had another circuit in this same little box that Bob Gunderson designed that would have a volume control 
in it that also adjusted the pitch of that oscillator. And when you were setting it up, someone would say, okay, your meter needs to show 150 milliamps. And they would then set the meter to that reading. And then you would set the other circuit in the box to where you heard the same pitch and you'd put a mark there and you could always come back to that. Now that sounds you know pretty complicated and I guess it kind of was, but once you got that set, you could go back and you could adjust that transmitter. And when you got those two pitches matched, you knew what that meter reading was. So at least it made it possible for you to tune your own system. It made it possible for me to tune my own transmitter. Mm -hmm. Now, someone had to wire it in, uh, hook it up to the meter. Eventually, I you know, could have probably done that myself, although there were some high voltages involved. And I wanted somebody that knew more about what they were doing around high voltage to do that. Uh, but once it was all connected and once it was all calibrated, it worked great. In fact, I still have a couple of those meter reading circuits I still have a couple of classic tube-type transmitters, and I use it with those. So you were pretty self-sufficient back then, then, even being blind with the old equipment. Well, I was, you know, because I was by myself part of the day and uh, during the summer, and I wanted to be able to move around and not just sit on in one frequency and one channel. I wanted to move around like everybody else did. And my parents were very supportive, helping me with stuff. My dad, for the first few months that I had a license when my dad would come home for dinner, he'd come in and we'd, you know, he'd check the transmitter and he'd say, yeah, you're still tuned. And, <laughs> you know, so, and he was not a ham radio operator. He was just following a sheet of instructions that somebody else wrote for him. Just, this is what you do. And then, uh, he, he told somebody later, I had got the box and gotten it working. He said, that's the greatest thing ever happened. Now I can come home and take a nap at lunch. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> my parents were very supportive of me. In the hobby, uh, my dad used to say, yeah, you know, it gets him out of the house but keeps him off the street, meaning that I made lots and lots of friends through ham radio, even as a teenager. So how have things changed for you these days with the new equipment and accessibility and the new ways of interacting with ham radio? Well, in the 70s, of course, things started becoming transistorized, solid state, we call it now. By about 1980, you could buy a transmitter that you did not have to adjust. The only adjustment you made on it was uh, your microphone level, which you usually set and left alone. And then you had another knob that set it on the frequency you wanted it to be on. And that was the only thing you had to do to that transmitter, provided that your antennas were resonant on the frequency you wanted to work on. Then you didn't have to tune that transmitter. About that same time, the analog frequency display dials became digital. And, uh, it, you know, you'd spin the dial and it would land on uh, 3.862 or, or 7.015 or whatever. And those numbers would just, you know, those characters would show on the screen. Well, when these digital dials came out, someone took an old Speech Plus talking calculator board and interfaced that with one of these digital dials. And the text-to-speech, as it were, voice frequency display was born. I got a hold of the schematic of that particular circuit, and a friend built that for me. TSI was selling off a bunch of uh, calculator boards, just the board, not the whole calculator. And then he built the interface that interfaced to that board with the radio that I had bought. And I thought I had gone to heaven. 
you know, that I could tune the radio and I had this push a button and it would tell me exactly where I was down to the nearest hundred hertz like everybody else. So it read out the digital display so you could hear exactly where you were. Yeah, I could hear exactly what was showing on that display. And I assume things have continued improving since then. Yes, yes. Around the mid-80s, a couple of companies started offering as an option a speech output board that would plug right into their radios. Kenwood did that in ICOM. Kenwood and ICOM are two of the big manufacturers. Again, all that board did was read the frequency part of the display. Well, I guess in maybe the mid-90s, somebody invented menus. Oops. <laughs> that, for a while, set ham radio accessibility back further than I really want to think about. Because while I would have access to the frequency display, you press the menu button and you had nothing. What did they do to fix the menu problem? Well, the Kenwood people figured out, you know, these menus may need to talk for some people. And so now the Kenwood radios that are out, pretty much everything in their menu system speaks enough that I can go in and set it independently by myself as long as I've got their little board. And, the, you know, we're talking about a, maybe a $75 board that plugs into a $1,400 or $1,500 radio. If you can afford the radio, you can afford the board. Kenwood is the best at that. Now, there's some other, you know, ICOM has some ac accessibility. Uh, some of the Chinese handheld manufacturers have some pretty good accessibility. There are still some add-on ac accessible uh, things for some of the radios that don't have that voice capability in the menu. So there's there are ways out there now to have access to things like the menu system. And then there's also computer interfaces. You can interface a radio with a PC and uh, or with a Mac. And if you have you know, a screen reader on your PC, then you have access to pretty much the full radio that way. But it sounds like at least there are a variety of choices for people these days, and it's just a matter of doing some homework to investigate which ones are accessible and how accessible they are and how they'd like to use their own equipment. Right, exactly. You mentioned that in the early 1900s, one of the reasons for setting up the ham radio system was for emergency purposes. I'm curious, have you ever used your ham radio for an emergency reason? Well, we had this phenomenon about 13 years ago named Hurricane Katrina. And uh, basically, the southern half of Mississippi was without any kind of communication for anywhere from a couple of days to several weeks as uh, the cell phone companies scrambled to get portable towers in place to replace the ones that were knocked over by Hurricane Katrina. There were numerous ham radio groups and individuals that went to places like storm shelters and uh, emergency operations centers and police departments, and they became the communications vehicle for those agencies. What I did at that particular time, I happened to be the president of the local amateur radio club at the time, the Jackson Amateur Radio Club. And I was at home with no power, just some handheld radios that had charged up all, all the batteries I could get my hands on at the time. So I had batteries that I could monitor the local stuff. And I had a telephone that still worked. 
So what I did was when they needed a phone call made from one of these shelters where they didn't have phone access, I would make these phone calls for them. I have occasionally handled uh, what we call traffic or messages from areas impacted by a tornado, by a disaster or whatever. Uh, I don't get out into the thick of the ground zero of the damage area for obvious reasons, but there's a lot and, you know, and a gracious plenty that I can do from my home station to serve as either what's called a net control, which is the guy who kind of keeps order on the channel so that the emergency stuff can get through. Or I can, uh, in some cases, uh, relay messages either through the radio or through a combination of the radio and telephone. And I've done that many times. So there are still great uses for ham radio even today. Yes, yes. And, in, you know, in addition to the fun part, to the, yeah. to the talking to somebody in, in lower Slobovia or whatever. Well, that was not our regular breaker tune. That was Eyes on Success in Morse Code. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about amateur radio and how to reach Mike Duke. If people wanted to find out more about ham radio or organizations that support blind ham radio operators, what would you advise them? The best one for material to study for a ham license and for the you know the basic things that I just talked about is an organization called Handy Ham. The, the website is handyham h a n d i h a m dot o r g and they have the current study materials available. They have some other services uh you can also learn a lot about ham radio through I mentioned the earlier the American Radio Relay League. Their site is ARRL.com. And, of course, they have a lot of books and things that they sell. Those They're in print. But there's also a lot of good general reading on that website that uh, will tell you a lot about the hobby and what people are doing. And the, you know, the other thing about the Internet is you can find a lot of material up there about just about anything you want, including ham radio, that you can read online independently. And if people wanted to reach you, short of getting you on the ham radio, how would they be able to reach you to ask questions? You can send me an email. My email address is my call letters, k5xu at comcast.net. And in addition, both the NFB at www.nfb.org and ACB at www.acb.org both have groups for blind ham radio operators to communicate with each other and share tips and techniques. We've actually done two previous shows about ham radio for the blind, and they were a while ago. So when we met you this spring, we were all excited. We're like, well, this is great. We'll do another one. It's been a while. Well, I appreciate doing it. Uh, my radio reading service uh, broadcasts Eyes on Success uh, every week. And, uh, of course, I look forward to hearing myself on the radio. I still haven't outgrown that. But it's a great show, and you all do a great job. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much.
And if you'd like to listen to those previous episodes we did on Ham Radio, you'll find that along with all the contact information that we heard earlier in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 1847. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about expanding services at APH. The American Printing House for the Blind recently began managing several services that used to be part of the American Foundation for the Blind, or AFB. APH is also growing their efforts in direct consumer sales. And we'll talk about these changes and what's new at APH with Dave Wilkinson, who is the Director of Sales and Customer Service. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes, and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success, or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.